Welcome to the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is a Soto Zen Sangha available anytime, anywhere at treeleaf.org. Come sit with us. Before I uh, forget, I do want to uh, just wish everyone a happy new year. Uh, having Norman here is a very special way for us to mark uh, the new year for our community. And uh, I also wanted to mention that uh, uh, many of us should feel that we uh, know uh, him very well because we've been reading for many weeks, What is Zen? Uh, with Susan Moon. Uh, Susan Moon was here um, a couple of months ago, also to lead a Zazenkai. Uh, so we've been, we're about halfway through uh, what is Zen at this point. So uh, I'll just leave it there and now I will turn everything over to uh, Norman. Thank you again for being here. Thank you. Thank you. <clears throat> it's my pleasure. <clears throat> it's nice to sit together in this way. And uh, I'm sitting in my office uh, in a chair which I don't usually do. I usually sit Zazen on a cushion. So uh, it's nice to sit in the chair and still be able to feel the feeling of Zazen. So I appreciate it. Well, I don't want to say too much because uh, I want to mostly be in dialogue with all of you. But I thought I'd bring up two short sayings by uh, Jajo to start us off. And then uh, I thought maybe I could read a poem, one of my poems, uh, randomly chosen. And that hopefully will be enough to get us started. So the, the first thing I want to bring up is from, is actually appears as the, uh, the 18th case in the Book of Serenity. And it's the famous uh, Zhaozhou's dog case. And most people are familiar with this story uh, as it appears in the Mumonkan, where, as you probably know, uh, the story just goes, the, a monk asks Zhaozhou, does the dog have Buddha nature? And Zhaozhou says, no, or in Japanese, mu. And in the English versions, the mu is often left untranslated. So that's the whole story as it appears in uh, Mumonkan. But uh, an earlier text, the Book of Serenity, gives the whole story. And, and so I'm going to actually read to you from Cleary's Book of Serenity and say a few words about the, about the story. So uh, a monk asks, uh, Zhaozhou, does a dog have Buddha nature or not? <clears throat> Zhaozhou says, yes. And the monk says, uh, well, if a dog has Buddha nature, how come it appears in this mangy skin bag? Why, why does it appear in that funky way if it has Buddha nature? And Zhaozhou says, uh, in Cleary's translation, well, he does it on purpose. He, he knows better than to be a mangy dog, but he appears as a mangy dog on purpose. Later on, a different monk asks Zhaozhou, does a dog have Buddha nature? And Zhaozhou says this time, no, 
No, no. And the monk says, wait a minute, all sentient beings have Buddha nature. Why does this dog not have Buddha nature? And Jiaozhou says, because the dog still has impulsive consciousness. So uh, this is a wonderful story. And uh, it, it, I think it, it encompasses the, the, what I love the most about Soto Zen practice. Uh, we learn and we understand and we have faith in the fact that uh, we're all Buddhas, not only all human beings and all dogs, but all creatures and not only all creatures that have some form of consciousness, but even creatures that appear to have no form of consciousness, like a rock or, as Dogen says, a wall, tiles and roof pebbles. So everything has Buddha nature, and yet the world is uh, a very troubled world, full of suffering and pain. One doesn't have to look very far uh, to see that one's own life is full of all kinds of limitations and confusions and, and suffering and pain and difficulty. We're so easily hurt. Our bodies are so vulnerable to uh, disease and being broken in a million ways. So how come the Buddha, which everything actually is, has to appear in the form of this broken world? And in a way, when Arjo answers the question, he's saying uh, this appearance of the world as you and me in all of our limitation is a beautiful and perfect vehicle for Buddha to work out her gorgeous destiny. It's the only way that Buddha could be Buddha is in this way. And so uh, when we are complaining and when we're uh, hoping that uh, somehow our Zen practice is going to make us different and better and happier, we're rejecting uh, our real destiny as Buddhists. We're rejecting the fact that all the pain and the difficulty and all the limitations are themselves the only way that Buddha nature could appear. So it's a kind of a brilliant, for me, it's a brilliant affirmation of the, of the uh, limitation of being human and, and showing us that, that this is exactly the limitation that we need and that the limited world is exactly the world that we need in order to be who we really are and what we most need to be. In the second part of the story, when he says, uh, does the dog have Buddha nature? And Joshua says, no. And the monk says, well, everything has Buddha nature. Why not the dog? Or why not you? Why not me? And Joshua says, because he still has impulsive consciousness. And we still have impulsive, impulsive consciousness. We still have uh, desire. We still have aversion. We will have those things as long as we're alive because uh, desire and aversion is life, right? Life in a dualistic world is always buffeted by desire and aversion. So uh, even though our world is perfect and our lives are perfect and our lives in this world is an expression of 
Buddha and Buddha couldn't be any other way. So we have the challenge of working and living in a relative world. So uh, we can't just leap over our pain into Buddhahood. We have to take it into account and work with it. So in, in, in our, our actual practice, um, there's a lot of stuff about working with negative emotions. There's precepts. There's uh, taking the world and its problems seriously on its own level. We can't leap over it. And both these sides together, the yes Buddha nature and the no Buddha nature, both are really the same thing in, in one fused reality. So uh, to live that and understand how to live that and remind ourselves over and over again that we don't understand well enough and that we'll have to keep practicing and keep trying to understand until the very end when maybe finally when we give up our lives we will finally completely and fully understand and not only understand but leap into that truth of the union of the yes and the no for me that's the complexity and the beauty of this story of Zhao Zhao and Zhao Zhao is you know the, the for me, the, the best and the greatest of all Zen teachers, because he's so simple, so straightforward. There's no Zen pyrotechnics with Zhao Zhao. It's the simplicity of straight and honest responses. So here's the next saying of Zhao Zhao I want to bring up. A monk asks him, what is Zazen? And Jojo says, Zazen is non-Zazen. This story doesn't appear in any of the collections. Uh, it's in Jojo's uh, sayings. So anyway, uh, the monk says, wait, how could Zazen be non-Zazen? That doesn't make any sense. And Jojo says, it's alive. So I love this saying because to me, it, it is really the most beautiful expression of uh, our Zazen practice, which is, as we know, you know, completely central to everything we understand and everything we live uh, in, in Soto Zen practice. So now, I guess it's the, the same you guys are from all over the world, and I'm guessing that no matter where you go in the world now, you hear about the virtues of meditation and the virtues of mindfulness and all the ways that it is scientifically proven to improve your life and help you to be happier and calmer and so on. And so uh, a lot of people come to Buddhism with this idea of Buddhism as being a, a tool, a technique, uh, to improve your life. And, and of course, that's all true. In fact, I think practicing Buddhism, I, I guess all of us would attest, does help and improve our lives. And yet at the same time, when you really practice Buddhism, that fact becomes almost irrelevant. And, and Zazen becomes something far more than a meditation technique to calm the mind and help you work with emotions and all that. 
it becomes uh, an entry into the inconceivable. It becomes a way of, through the limitations of your own thinking mind that keeps popping up in Zazen or your short sore back or your achy shoulder or whatever funky phenomena occur in Zazen, it becomes through something that you see through all that to a kind of vastness that is at the heart of all of consciousness. So Zazen, then Shikantaza, as we say in Soto Zen, that the sort of official name for our way of doing Zazen. Zazen is um, beyond technique, beyond result, uh, even beyond anything that we can think about it. It's a kind of plunging into the heart of our lives. Uh, I have a whole discourse about experience. Do we even experience Zazen? Does that even make sense to say, I experience my own Zazen? I think that the more I fully enter my Zazen, the, the less I can say I am experiencing Zazen or I am experiencing anything. In a way, the vastness and the immensity of Zazen is beyond my experience, even though I'm sitting in the middle of it. I'm right there sitting in the middle of it. And I honestly feel this way every time I do Zazen. I'm, I'm, I, all these years I've been doing Zazen, maybe 50 years regularly, and uh, I never get bored with it because uh, it is so immense and ineffable and impossible to really describe its essence. So that's why when Zhao says, Zazen is non-Zazen. In other words, any, anything that we would define as Zazen, Zazen is beyond that. And, and what does that mean? It means it's alive. And uh, so I think that uh, now, Practically speaking, there are there are techniques for zazen, right? I mean, I'm, I'm my, my my practice has always been the breath. So I always sit and immediately go to my breath and feel my breath, and, and I sometimes counting, mostly not, but the following, feeling the breath in the whole body, and feeling the rhythm of the breath, uh, so forth. Many many ways of being with the breath. So I, I am making an effort to focus my mind on the breathing. So there are techniques, and there are many other techniques. In fact, one of the things that I think is beautiful about Zazen and koan literature is that um, we can uh, be creative in our sitting. We can invent techniques. We can practice many, with many kinds of techniques, all for the purpose of uh, focusing and quieting the mind and settling into Zazen. But none of these techniques are Zazen. They're only aids to Zazen, and sometimes we might dispense with any technique at all. In fact, in the end, once we settle ourselves, really get quiet, we, we do go beyond any of these techniques. So, so there are, so there is something we're doing in Zazen, but in fact, the Zazen is beyond all that doing. And so maybe you can see the connection between these two sayings of Zazen, of, uh, sorry, of Zhao Zhao, the first one about Buddha nature, 
which is a statement about our lives, who we really are and how we really live, and the second one, which is specifically about zazen. And you can see the connection between, yes, to really understand what Zhao Zhao is talking about, in the Buddha nature story, we practice zazen. And what zazen really is, is our settling into our being, that true nature of what we are, that Zhao Zhao is pointing to in the first story. So anyway, I'll, I'll end with, uh, I'll, I'll find a poem. Uh, this is, uh, so I'm going to read from uh, my, my latest book of poems. It's a serial poem called On a Train at Night. It was published by University Press in France, but it's available from a small press distribution in Berkeley. And, and this poem is a, is a long uh, serial poem, as I say, uh, making the effort to uh, use language to talk about this vastness and this ineffability. Jeered and mooed and read the oracles. Fuzzy clouds over sea must mean something, like tortoise shells, entrails, tea leaves. All pattern decodes significance, which is what, after all, anything? The implications. Preternatural twilight once we were happy. Whose concept is that? Cows, they say, are happy, so people can't be. Bees and beers, brisket, gristle. These lines indicate that. How chew on words of the gone ones. Of course I do. Everything said in exactly these residue letters. Shells and seaweed and jumbled by the shore. Invisible at night. Walking back and forth in this distracted manner. The melody sways back and forth. Huck, 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 huck. Behind it. So, with that, maybe we can uh, talk. And obviously, what you want to bring up doesn't need to be limited or refer at all to anything I've just said. Whatever you want to talk about, I'm happy to talk about. Thank you uh, so much. And uh, I just want to mention for the folks at home, if you uh, email me, I'll be able to ask uh, questions uh, to Norman as well. We've already had a couple of people send uh, emails. But any of the people uh, attending, anyone's got to uh, kick us off? A uh, question? Raise your hand, please. Don't be shy. Amelia. First of all, thank you for coming. Um, it's wonderful to meet you. And um, I'm curious, um, what advice would you give to someone interested in contemplative writing? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I think that uh, I would practice Zazen, as I guess you do, and I would devote myself to that. And uh, maybe you notice when you're sitting in Zazen that things come into your mind, right? And you 
trust everything that comes into your mind. You, you don't think, oh, that's a mistake that I'm thinking that I shouldn't be thinking that. You think, okay, that came into my mind. That had to be there in that moment. And I come back to my breath. I let it go. So in other words, there's a kind of sense in which you're at the same time trusting your mind, but not indulging your mind, right? You're, you're, you're trusting what comes up and being willing to let it go. So there's a free and easy attitude about the contents of your own mind. And you, the more you sit, the more you trust that. And you realize that you don't need to work hard at expressing yourself. You are expressing yourself. Your mind is going to produce what it needs to produce in any given moment. And, you, and you're not making that happen, right? You're not saying, I'm going to have this thought right now. It appears, right, without your willing it. So in contemplative, so you learn that from Zazen. And then in contemplative writing, you do the same thing. You trust that what is needed will appear and that you don't need to will it or shape it or identify with it even. Because I think that the hard thing about writing is you identify, with, I am now expressing myself how is this going to look to other people? And that's the death of contemplative writing. Because that self-consciousness, that self-awareness, and that self-judgment, which you project under the judgment of others, makes it impossible to find the expression that you uniquely are here to give. I think that one of the faiths that we have in our practice is that your life, my life, is a unique expression of Buddha Dharma. Nobody else can ever express your, what you are here to express. It's unique and it's absolutely necessary. If it weren't necessary, you wouldn't be alive. It's absolutely necessary. So you have that faith, you know, and so then out of that faith and out of that free and easy relationship with your own mind, without much judgment, you begin to produce writing, you begin to produce text. Now, um, depends on every, every text that you produce has a different um, purpose and, and in a sense is a different form. So later, right, later after you've produced something, you have to think, okay, now what am I doing with this? And what kind of a text? So in other words, what I'm trying to say here is that later on you go back and you shape the text more deliberately. So there is some judgment involved at that point, you know. So is this a poem for a magazine? How do I want to do that? Is this a journal entry? What do I, what about that? Is this a letter to a friend? What about that? So in other words, um, later on, you can apply some, some standards and some, and some shaping of the text. But even then, it's, it's um, moved by the same spirit, a permissive, open, confident spirit. Uh, not so much worrying about it. So uh, that's what I would say for now about doing contemplative writing. It's a wonderful thing. Please do, do, do it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I want to read uh, one question from uh, someone at home. and uh, But first I have to tell you who, the, who this person is. His name is uh, Koku. And uh, he's actually uh, training as a to be a priest with us, but he has a very debilitating illness that uh, keeps him in bed much of the time. So I've had to design a special priest training course for someone who is basically bedridden uh, or cannot leave his apartment sometimes. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so he participated in our Roja session recently, and he did a special Samu practice, uh, which involved very little movement at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a very, very he's a, he's going to be an excellent priest. But here's mm-hmm. his question: uh, Hi, Zoketz. Thank you so much for coming to speak to us. I greatly appreciate it, as I imagine do the rest of the Sangha here, and I am sorry I am not well enough to attend on the video call. Before I began Soto Zen practice, I worked extensively in the Tibetan traditions and, like you, noticed the comparative absence of explicit compassion-based practices in Zen. I have later learned that these teachings are more implicit than explicit, but was very grateful to read your book, Training in Compassion, on the Lojong teachings, which I have always found very helpful in my life, especially in living with chronic illness. So my question to you is, how do you think that book has been received by Zen Sanghas and teachers? Are there any Sanghas you know of which incorporate uh, Lojong teachings as part of their training, or are they more adopted by individuals? I'm very grateful to Jundo, that's me, who invited me to form a Tonglen practice circle at Tree Leaf and think it is helpful to those who attend. We have a, a Tonglen group uh, mm-hmm. that meets online like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you say? Yeah, well, um, first of all, yes, I think that uh, in, in the West, people didn't appreciate, I think, the fact that Zen is, of course, Buddhism, and that, and that throughout history, all of Buddhism was always included in Zen. Zen specialized in its literature and in its, uh, in its discourse and practice in uh, a specific aspect of Buddhism, but all of Buddhism was always included and it was all, always understood, so it is implicit rather than explicit. So when Zen came to the West, absent all that contact, all that context, uh, we assumed at first that it wasn't there because it wasn't mentioned so much. But uh, if you study the lives and the sayings of various Zen teachers over the generations, compassion is at the heart of always of Zen. It's surprising to a lot of people when they first realize that. However, since it's implicit rather than explicit, I, I, as I say in my introduction to training and compassion, I, I think we need to uh, access Buddhist teachings from elsewhere in the tradition to make it more explicit. And yes, lots of Zen Sanghas have uh, taken up studying training and compassion, not just individuals, but Sanghas. And I, and I think that uh, what I've understood and what caused me to um, write the book has been understood by many, many other people, many, many other teachers uh, throughout the world. I mean, here your own Sangha, as you just said, is sees that, right? And, and is using uh, Tonglen as a technique within your Sangha, not as something that's not Zen, but as part of the Zen program. So, so yeah, I think that uh, Tonglen and many other uh, practices, for example, I have an, a book coming out in the spring, um, about the six paramitas. So the six paramitas are an- another uh, program for um, Zen practice, another, another rubric, you know, for looking at our Zen practice. And they also include uh, 
many aspects that we don't think of as being part of Zen, you know, generosity, ethical conduct, patience, energy, and so on. So, so yeah, all of this in Western Zen, I think, is it's now mainstream. It's I, I don't think, uh, you know, I've figured out some new thing that nobody else is thinking about. I think that everybody's thinking about this in all the groups around the country in their own way. So they may or may not be using Tonglen, but the necessity of compassion practice, I think, is is general uh, in, in Western Zen at this point. Yeah, I think so. Okay, good. Any uh, question from uh, someone uh, attending the, the, the hangout here? Wave your hand. Okay, Frankie, Mato. Let me get you. There you go. Um, I was a bit reluctant to put my hand up because I don't know. If, can you hear me okay? Yes. Oh, good. Okay. Thank you, Norman, so much for your talk. It was really interesting. And this is perhaps not so much a question as um, a comment. I wanted to thank you for your involvement in creating the Women Ancestors document, um, which we are now adopting at Tree Leaf. Oh, wonderful. And... Um, it, the, it, I've, as a woman, obviously, I'm very interested in supporting, encouraging and empowering other women. But there is always this paradox that the Dharma is beyond the male-female gender thing. And I'm never quite sure how to reconcile that with with my belief that I really want to um, empower other women. I, I'm cleaving to being a woman and supporting other women and not seeing it as a whole thing. Um, I don't know if you've got any comment on that. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful question. Yeah. Well, I think you can uh, relate what you're saying to... Uh, the story of does the dog have Buddha nature? <clears throat> does the dog have Buddha nature? Yes. <clears throat> There's no difference between male and female. There's no difference between men and women. Does the dog have Buddha nature? No. There's a difference between men and women. There's a, a, a whole history of suffering and oppression behind that difference between men and women. So both those things have to be fused to make our practice real. So if we say, oh, don't try to empower women, Dharma is beyond men and women, that's just being political. Then you're ignoring one side of the equation. No, it's all about empowering women. The Dharma only comes down to empowering women. There's nothing beyond that. Then you're ignoring the other side of the equation. So the trick is, can you empower women and work to empower women? Let's say, just take the case you're bringing up specifically, can you do that entirely out of love? Not resentment, not uh, denigration of, of males for, for their, all their many mistakes over the generations, uh, not, not bitterness about the social 
conditions under which we're living, but strictly out of love. Uh, as a woman, I really appreciate women, and I want to empower women, and, uh, and I'm, and I'm going to work very hard to do that out of love, and, and that my empowering of women is not in opposition to anything. It's out of love for everything, because if women don't find their best place in this world, how do men find their best place in this world? If the human animal can't find its right place in this world, how do all the other animals find their right place in the world? So in other words, you, do, you put these two things together, and they're not contradictory. So yes, please do. We need to all consider the empowering of women and of all groups that have been dishonored and disempowered because that's, that's a pain for everyone. It's not, I, I, one of my things that I feel more, more deeply than almost anything else is that the oppressor, the one with the advantages, is not advantaged. To gain advantage at the expense of someone else is to lose advantage. You are limited if your heart is limited. If you don't see the full inclusion of, of others as part of what you need for your life, your life is limited. So I feel sorrier for the oppressors than I do for the oppressed because the oppressors uh, have more damaged hearts, whether they know it or not. So they might look like they have all the, all the power and all the money, and, and maybe they do, but they don't have all their humanity either. So in that way, when you're working for the uh, empowerment of women, you're not just working for women. You have to understand it that way. I want to empower women for women and for everyone. Thank and, uh, you. Connected with what Frankie just asked, I'd like to uh, just plant a little seed with you. Um, we actually uh, did something uh, this year for the first time. Uh, that I'm trying to get other Sangha uh, interested in, and so far it hasn't had much traction. So an influential guy like you, I just want to plant the seed there. We had, as I mentioned, we have a lot of disabled members. We researched disabled ancestors or differently abled ancestors oh. in the history of Buddhism. It was very hard to find because doors were shut to so many people, but there were various stories of people in the, uh, since the early days of Buddhism who overcame disability and became great teachers or lay people too. And we put together a chart and we did a ceremony just with the women. We did one time the women's lineage chart. It's actually on the same chart for us. And we did the differently abled ancestors. Uh, and I presented it to the SCBA. So far, no reaction at all. Mm -hmm. But I'm just gonna toss it out. Influential guy like you, if uh, you think it over, maybe that uh, would be something I think a lot of other Sangha uh, might also recognize because they had so many doors uh, shut on them for uh, uh, 2,500 years. Yeah. Well, it would be it would be interesting to see <clears throat> what you came up with, what your research is. But yeah, I mean, it just goes to show you. I mean, who I never thought of that, right? You don't. That's that's the whole idea. <clears throat> you don't know what you don't know, right? So, yeah, share share some of that research with me, and and I appreciate the idea. Yeah, I'll, I will. Uh, 
I will think about it and mention it to people. Thank you. Very good. Let yeah. me read uh, one more question uh, from home. This is uh, by a fellow named uh, Zenki Salad. He's very influential on a lot of the Soto groups uh, on uh, Facebook, by the way. And he's studying to be, or he's going to soon ordain um, to be a Zen priest with a white plum group in Florida. Mm -hmm. uh, very good guy. And he says this, thank you uh, for Norman. Thanks so much for that great talk on being human. I'm about to be ordained this year, probably in autumn of 2019. What advice can you give to an aspiring Zen priest? Zenki Salad. Mm, thank you. Well, uh, here are some of the things that I often say to people who are aspiring to ordain as uh, priests. Although, I think these same things go for anybody who wants to practice Soto Zen with utmost commitment and seriousness. You don't really have to be a priest to be a priest, to practice as a priest. First of all, um, <clears throat> To practice as a priest, and I've been using this word, most people don't like this word, but it, to practice as a priest is to be obligated to practice. Uh, people don't like to feel obligated, you know, they want to be free. <laughs> but I think when you're a priest, uh, you undertake the yoke and the obligation of practice. So. Uh, I love to practice. Uh, practice is good for my life. It, it really makes a big difference for me. I really enjoy it. I, I love it. But even if I didn't enjoy it and didn't love it, even if I found it an onerous, burdensome task, I would still be obliged to do it because I'm a priest. So I'm no longer a free agent. Uh, Dharma is the commitment of my life. And whether I like it or not, that's what I do. And the kind of supreme wonder of all that is that because of that, I love it more. Because of that, I benefit from it more. Because it's no longer something that I, as a limited, independent, willful agent, have chosen. It's something that is uh, infused in my life beyond my desire. Therefore, it's more profound and more beneficial to me. So I practice as an obligation. Uh, beyond my desire. So then I th think that there are three practices uh, for a priest. And again, anybody who wants to practice with full commitment can take up this, these three practices. Uh, the first one is, um, and again, you could say these are three practices or three obligations. The first one is, be humble. Uh, I think that uh, I know in, in my own experience in Zen in the West, people have ordained and felt a little bit self-satisfied about it. They felt like, well, I guess I'm more advanced person or more knowledgeable, or I guess I have fancier robes because I'm a priest. There was a kind of arrogance. There can be an arrogance, uh, not only in Western Zen, which is new, but I think in Asian traditions, uh, there, there is a kind of subtle arrogance often in being an ordained clergy, you know, as if you're more important. But I think it's the opposite. I think that the priests go last. You know, the priests go, everybody else goes to awakening, and the priest is the last one to leap in 
because uh, the more you practice as a priest, the more you realize your own limitations. The more you realize how little you know and how, how weak your commitment is. The more, the more you take it seriously, the more you see that. So humility is not just, uh, oh, uh, I'm a humble person. Humility is a, an honest understanding of what it means to be human. To be human really is to be humble. If you really understand your life, you're, you're a humble person. You realize how limited you are. So first, be humble. Second, uh, see everyone as Buddha. Don't, don't you know, we, we can have discriminations. This one's smart, this one's dumb, this one's tall, this one's short. Even this one I like, this one I don't like. But uh, everybody's Buddha. And you really have to see that there's only Buddhas. You're never going to meet anybody, ever, who isn't. Buddha. And so everything should be treated as Buddha. Even inanimate objects are, are Buddhas. That's why we bow to our cushion before we sit, because our cushion is the place of Buddha. It is Buddha. So, so cultivate this feeling of treating everyone and everything as Buddha and make that central to your practice. And the third practice is, and on a very simple uh, level, try to help. Try to help. Wherever you are, you're always in a position, one way or the other, to help. And, and sometimes help is nothing more or less than listening and being present with whatever is in front of you with a feeling of awesome respect. And sometimes there's a clear need to do something that would be a benefit to someone, a kind, a kind word, a smile, a hello, food clothing, political activity, uh, defense, even aggression. Whatever is needed to really help somebody in need uh, without hurting others, you should do it. It's your commitment to do it. So, uh, and this is 24 hours a day, every day. It's not just special conditions, special cases. Uh, help is needed in some way all the time, every moment in our practices to help in whatever way we can find that's appropriate. So to be humble, to see everyone as Buddha, and to try to help. Uh, these are the three practices that I always recommend to all priests. And everything else, I think, comes from that. Of course, in Soto Zen, uh, wearing Buddha's robe is itself a practice, right? In our tradition, um, we sew our own okesa. So that's a big deal, right? It takes hundreds of hours to sew an okesa. And with every stitch of sewing, you say, uh, I take refuge in Buddha. Every stitch. So you're sewing your commitment into your robe. And it usually takes a year or more to sew your robe. And then you receive it uh, in the ceremony. And you understand that this is Buddha's actual robe. And so wearing that robe is a big practice for a Soto Zen priest. And, and, and I know that in some lineages they don't sew their own robe, and perhaps in some lineages they don't wear it very often. But the solemn sense of, uh, I literally am in Buddhist family. I literally am wearing Buddhist clothing. Uh, that's also a big part of being a priest. When you're uh, a lay practitioner and you sew a rakasu, it's the same idea. Rakasu is also understood as Buddhist clothing, and you are sewing and wearing 
Buddhist clothing. So that's a very almost the most people in the world would not appreciate the depth uh, of that practice of wearing Buddha's robe. But but in in Soto Zen, uh, certainly in our branch of Soto Zen, it's something that we honor quite a bit and, and focus on. So that's a very specific practice as well that I would mention. So all those things, uh, take those things to heart and you're, you're in good shape. Anyway, that's my opinion. I have a, a question. James, wave, wave your hand there. Uh, James says his microphone's not working. So will I read your, he emailed me his question. Sorry, my phone is ringing and I just shut it off. Okay. James, move your lips while I'm reading your question. So it looks like... Uh, <laughs> in the West, Zen is not something most of us are born into. Instead, we find it likely as a result of searching for something. This could be changes in, to our life, ways to cope with suffering or searching for something beyond ourselves. As a result, we start the path with a goal. Inevitably, we either reach these goals or we do not. How have you fueled this practice for so long? Is there always some goal to drive it or is there something else that takes over? Well, uh, <clears throat> I would say both, both. <clears throat> I think there's a lot of discourse in Soto Zen. Uh, Suzuki Roshi is famous for saying, no gaining idea, no, no, no goal. Uh, Soto Zen uh, is, I think, uh, known for its non-emphasis on Satori or enlightenment experiences, which would be a kind of goal. So, um, typically, Soto Zen is understood as being based on faith in the practice and not so much on goals for the practice. But, uh, but I think that uh, actually, again, just like I was saying before in relation to supporting women, it's both and. Uh, you can't just emphasize one side. To emphasize no goal is to be one-sided. To emphasize there's a goal is to be one-sided. It's both. So the goal is I want to understand more deeply. I want to have a stronger understanding and a bigger faith. And I will always have that goal. I will never <clears throat> be satisfied. I will never say, aha, now I have the ultimate understanding. No more to understand. I, I, that is an impossible. No human being could ever, as far as I'm concerned, no human being could ever say that. That would be always a delusion because... As long as you're alive, you're limited. You, you, haven't, you haven't transcended your limitations. So always to understand more, always to have stronger commitment, always to have deeper wisdom. And to have that on and on and on. So it's a goal that you never realize. So is a goal that you never realize and that you understand that you never realize, is that a goal? I don't know if you'd call it a goal. Maybe it's a goalless goal or the ultimate goal, or I don't know what. So yes, there is a, there is a kind of uh, sense of, of striving, making effort toward something, but also there's the understanding that you never arrive at that place. And so the effort that you're striving for 
is you know, relaxed and balanced and has a sense of humor about it because what are we doing having a goal that we can never realize? It's ridiculous. Yes, it is. It's ridiculous. It's funny. But that's us. That's, we're human beings. There's something ironic built into our, our whole being human. It, the whole thing, being human is an impossible game to play. It doesn't work out. It's impossible. And that's wonderful. So you have that spirit. So yes, a goal and, and no goal at the same time. And I think that what keeps me going and what keeps practice going, I think, over time is that inevitably, the more you practice, the more it's going to occur to you that there's only one way to practice, and that's to practice with others. Soto Zen is a with others practice. So uh, then, you know, you realize, oh, my practice is the practice of others. That's my practice. That's my practice. It's the practice of others. So I'm practicing for others. I'm practicing with others. And it's the others that keep me going. It's the others that uh, light, light up my life and keep my life and my practice bright. So I'm very grateful that I practice with others. Uh, people say, geez, you've been doing this forever and ever and ever. Are you, are you going to retire? I say, retire from spending time with my best friends. I should, you retire from that. You, you retire from loving the people you love and being with the people you love to be with in the most beautiful way to be together. Somebody would want to retire from that. No, I've, I retired long ago, you know. I've been retired all this time, you know, so there's nothing to retire from. I mean, yes, you come to the day when you can't get out of bed, and then when you can't get out of bed, you practice with the others with every breath. When, they're ma when they appear not to be there, but they are there anyway in every breath. So, yeah, I might not appear anymore with other people. I might be too enfeebled to leave my room and be disabled, like uh, as Jundo was saying, many of the tree leaf practitioners, uh, one we were talking to, who can't leave his room. And I, I'll be like that too at some point, as we all will. But that doesn't mean that I won't still be practicing with others. Uh, and it's those others in my breath that will be keeping me going until I give up my last breath on an exhale and don't inhale Okay, I have a, a question from home uh, from uh, Sam. Uh, may I repeat our gratitude for having you join us today? A theme in your book, What is Zen, is the role of faith in practice. For those of us who struggle with or have a cultural philosophical aversion to, quote, faith, do you see this as a limitation to fully engaging with the Dharma? And I'll just add a personal note. This issue comes up a lot uh, with our members who have baggage from their childhoods with yeah. their original religion. So I tend to use the word deep trust instead of faith or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, do you think uh, her uh, aversion to faith is a limitation in fully engaging with the Dharma? Not at all. Not at all. Yes, I think uh, when we use the word faith, in English, 
and probably the same is true in all European languages as well. That word has taken on a meaning given to it by Christianity. <clears throat> Christianity has uh, a profound and fairly developed doctrine of faith. So the word faith in all European languages, and in English too, can't but have that um, baggage to it. Of course, Buddhism, uh, the whole Buddhist discourse, was not formed in dialogue with Christianity at all. So the word faith, which of course doesn't exist, that word faith doesn't exist in Buddhism, shraddha can be translated as faith or can be translated as confidence, or it can be translated, as you translated, Jundo, as deep trust. And it's a totally different idea than faith in European languages inflected by Christianity. So when the question says, oh, gee, I, I have an aversion to faith, can I still practice Buddhism? I don't think it's an aversion to Shraddha, I think it's an aversion to the Christian doctrine of faith. It's actually not an aversion to the real Christian doctrine of faith. It's an aversion to what we have taken to be the Christian doctrine of faith. So I think, Jindo, you're very wise not to use the word faith, but instead to use uh, another word. And I often use, I, I use the word trust a lot too. I think trust is a better word than faith. But uh, I use the word, so when I use the word faith, I use it on purpose, knowing all of this. And the reason I use it is because I think that in the end, for our practice to really, really take hold in our hearts, we're going to have to include within it our own cultural background and baggage. In other words, if we're practicing Soto Zen Buddhism, because we're fleeing from something that we think Soto Zen Buddhism is saving us from, that's shaky. Now, it might take 20 or 30 years to get over that, which makes sense. Yeah, it might take 20 or 30 years, but in the end, we have to uh, appreciate and incorporate this idea of faith that we're fleeing from in order for our practice to really, really be solid, not only collectively, but in our own individual hearts. So no, I don't think it's a problem. In fact, any attitude that one has is always just fine for practice. You know, you bring everything that you are and everything that you have into your practice. You don't say, I'm not supposed to feel this way. I'm not supposed to think that way. I'm not supposed to look at things this way. No, the way that you are is the way that you practice, what you bring into practice. And practice, if you give yourself to it, will give you what you need. So in other words, you don't have to censor yourself or get rid of this or that in you. You just have to be honest about what your real thoughts and feelings are and bring all of it into your practice. Trust your practice. Sit every day. Listen to the Dharma, keep on going, and you will inevitably end up being 
exactly where you need to be. So there's no, no, nothing. I, I would say no matter what anybody feels, it's not a problem for practice. Just keep practicing, keep your ears and eyes open, and everything will be worked out as it needs to be. So don't worry. Um, I have a question from uh, Mexico. The, the fellow, he's a, a Zen priest. He, he has a group in Mexico. And uh, I have to interpret the question a little because it's a little hard to understand. But Buddha nature is in everything that exists. I try to explain this as best I can to my Spanish-speaking group, but ego and self-awareness is huge for us Latin Americans. Whenever a version arises, people get really upset and in defensive mode, which blinds reason. How can we accept and be, and be at peace with that which seems harmful and dangerous? How can we teach it? I think he's asking, how do you teach people who really resist an idea? I think that's yeah. what he's saying. He also yeah. wants to know if any of your books are available in Spanish. Yes, uh, you know, uh, we have a sangha in Mexico. We uh, do uh, annual Rojatsu session every year in Mexico in a little fishing town called Chacala, which is now, these days, partly a fishing town and partly a, a town for local Mexican tourists because it has a gorgeous beach. So we have Rojatsu session there every year, and we have, uh, and it's, and it's uh, some people come from North America, but our Sangha in Mexico is mostly Mexican. So we have people from all over Mexico who come and, and practice with us. And we've been down there for more than 25 years. So we have lots of very committed and developed Mexican Sangha members. So uh, you'll have to, at the end of my answer here, I'll, I hope I'll find out the name of this person and where he or she is, because uh, maybe he'll come and join with us sometime or she. Uh, I'll put you in touch if I may. Good, yeah. Anyway, uh, so I very well understand uh, the, the uh, dealing with aversion in Mexican culture is a huge practice issue. Uh, I'm aware of it from, because uh, I talk about it all the time with our Mexican Sangha members. Um, and we've had uh, plenty of aversive episodes between Sangha members, right? <laughs> because it's, so, it's such a thing in Mexican culture and in Latin culture in, in general. So the way I think about it and talk to them about it is, um, so it's two things. Uh, first of all, as I just said, honesty. There, to me, honesty with oneself is a basic foundation brick stone, foundation stone for practice. To say this way and that way that I'm feeling is unzen and I'm not supposed to feel that way is no way to practice. You can't get anywhere that way because then you're being dishonest with yourself and, and, that, and that will never work. So I think you have to look within yourself and you have to really say, this is how I'm feeling. This is, I, I hate her. I mean, I have to be honest. I really, really hate her. I can't help it. She said this. She did this. I'm so pissed off at her. I can't pretend I'm not. That's the truth. I'm really, really pissed. Okay. That's how I feel. I do understand, as I look at my mind, that my being pissed off with her is creating enormous pain 
for me. I'm an unhappy person. I can't stop thinking about her. I can't stop thinking about how she hurt me. That train of thought, that obsession is making my life a lot less happy. It, it makes me not want to practice. It makes me not want to sit. It just kind of puts me in a bad mood. So I, I can see by my honesty and my observation that my aversion, anger against this person, however much I feel it's justified, she did do a bad thing. She's a rotten person. I, I, that's really the truth. Nevertheless, I have to look and see that this aversion that I'm feeling is causing me a great deal of pain and it's not helping my practice. That's also the truth. So then I'm learning that in order to practice, in the end, in the end, if all beings are Buddha nature, if the dog has Buddha nature, then even this rotten son of a bitch that did this horrible stuff to me has Buddha nature too, then I have to forgive. But to be honest, I can't forgive. I'm so mad. I'm not forgiving. Okay, that's true. It's causing me pain. And I understand that Buddha Dharma tells me that in the end, I have to see the virtue even in this person. So that's, that's me. That's how I am right now. That's my life right now. I keep practicing with this discomfort and I keep going forward. Nobody's telling me when I'm angry, I'm not supposed to be angry. I can't help it. Nobody's telling me I'm supposed to shut up. But they are telling me, keep practicing, notice the pain and understand that in the end, you have to let go of that pain, which means you have to forgive. That doesn't mean I'm going to say to her, I don't care. It doesn't matter what you did. No, I still care what you did. It was still bad. But in my heart, I've released the pain. And so I'm no longer obsessed. So in that way, there's a whole discourse. Uh, if you go to the Everyday Zen website, there's got to be hundreds of talks about forgiveness and working with afflictive emotions. And that's what we're talking about here. So with your students in Mexico, I think it's very important to talk to them about uh, working with how do you work with afflictive emotions? That's really what this is about. We're getting to the last few minutes, sir. I want, don't want to hold you uh, too much. So I, this question um, is a big one. I'm going to shorten it. And it, it's a, a hot button one these days. With all that's going on in the world, should Zen people be political? Or do you agree with about things like global warming and, and, and uh, what's going on in Washington? Or do you think that we should, our message should be that samsara just is terrible and get out, we, we don't touch politics? Or if we're doing politics, are we Zenis or Buddhists guilty of being too lefties and we're forcing leftist messages on everybody in, who comes to our sangha who's not necessarily a very liberal and progressive? You, I think you got yeah. the question. Yeah, I, I do. Yeah. And goodness knows, this comes up a lot, as you say. I think everything is political because of, does a dog have Buddha nature? No. There are differences. There are problems. There will always be differences and problems as long as we're human beings together. So what's the ultimate political, uh, the ultimate political movement the ultimate political practice is love, compassion and love. So that's, so to me, yes, Buddhism is 100% political because Buddhism promotes compassion and love. 
<clears throat> we should be compassionate toward one another. We should love one another. And that means we should be concerned for one another and take care of one another. So uh, it doesn't matter what party you're from or what, you know. So, no, I don't think we should be insisting on leftist messages in our zendos and in our dharma halls. But I think we should be insisting on compassion and love. And we should say that our leaders should be expressing and acting in the direction of compassion and love and taking care of people. That's what leaders are supposed to do. Just like in the Sangha, you know, the leaders of the Sangha are not supposed to be lording it over everybody. They're supposed to be making it better and easier for people to practice. They're supposed to be taking care of people and helping them to practice. Political leaders are supposed to be doing the same. They're supposed to be promoting peace, promoting love, promoting welfare for everyone, protecting those in need of protection, and so on and so forth. So people may differ vastly over programs for how to accomplish that, but I think that we need to appeal to people politically that that is the program. You could be a, a radical right-wing Republican. That's good. I, I think there's a lot of interesting, important ideas radical right-wing Republicans have, but let's be sure that they're all in the service of compassion and love and kindness. And that's what we, we would stand for as Buddhists. And it's not an ideology. It's a feeling that comes out of our hearts because we've been cultivating this practice for a long time. And that's how we feel about our own lives and about one another. And, and, and so when I go and do whatever political action I do, which is make, cast a vote, for example, that's, that's going to be the basis for my vote. And that's going to be the basis for any political political action I might take. Never, never opposition and hatred. Never, never disrespect for the other side. Ever, ever that. Never. Okay. I'm just going to say uh, thank you. Uh, thank you. This was a great honor. Uh, we're going to continue with what is Zen in our sangha. Can I ask the that's name right. of your new book? That's it's coming on the spring, I think. Yeah, I, I think it's up on Amazon already for pre-ordering. It's called. The world could be otherwise. It's really all about what we've just been talking about. The world could be otherwise. Imagination and the Bodhisattva path. And it's really a book about the six paramitas, but proposing the six paramitas as a path of imagination. We really need to devote ourselves to our imaginations and the vastness of our inner lives if we're ever going to survive this world, which is so crazy at this moment. Okay. This was a wonderful way to uh, start the new year, and we'll just say thank you. Everybody, Gasho. Right. Thanks, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Thank you, Norman. Good night. Good morning. Good morning. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. See you, guys. Thank you for joining us for the Tree Leaf Zendo podcast. Tree Leaf is an online practice place for people who cannot easily attend a Zen center due to health, location, work, childcare, or family needs. We provide netcast zazen, retreats, discussion, jukai, the support of fellow practitioners, interaction with a teacher, and all other activities of a Zen Buddhist Sangha, all fully online, accessible anytime, anywhere, without charge. Come build the future of online Zen community and practice.